Hello, this is John Hendren with episode number eight of BachCast. You can learn more about BachCast, including the show notes, by going to bieberfan.org, B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N dot O-R-G. In this episode, we're looking at Bach's piece, Christlag and Todesbanden, BWV number four. What we're listening to right now is another setting Bach used with the melody from a chorale by Martin Luther. It's the slower notes in the texture there for organ. This organ piece is actually BWV 625 being performed by Tan Koopman. This is part of his recording of all Bach's works that initially appeared on the Das Alte Werk uh, label, which was part of Teldeck. Uh, which is a, a Warner um, label that has been reissued. We'll put the link for that recording in the show notes. The text from this chorale um, means Christ lay in death's bonds, Christ lag in Todesbanden. And I have some really strong memories of this piece, actually. Uh, first hearing it, first learning about it. I was taking a class with Professor Alfred Mann, um, at the Eastman School of Music. The title of the course was J.S. Bach. Whole course just on Bach. Of course, you don't really get to... You've got a good appreciation of Bach out of that course, but you never really got the, the whole thing, despite the, despite the title. And Professor Mann would, would talk about his experiences performing some of this music, and he used a record player, despite the fact that CDs were out. He had everything on records. He had them ready to go. And... It was just kind of a moving experience. He was, he was a very learned man. Uh, he was born in Germany. He came over to the U.S. And uh, this piece definitely meant a lot to him. Uh, it was a very important work of Bach's in terms of being a very high-quality work. And it was written when Bach was young. Uh, we believe Bach was about 22 years old when this was written. Um, some scholars believe that this was written... Uh, as part of a, an interview, a portfolio, if you will, when he was auditioning in Mulhausen. Um, before Bach gets to Leipzig, where he's most famous for writing cantatas, uh, he was moving around to different places um, as an organist, as a composer of religious music, and for a time, even in a non-religious setting, uh, writing instrumental music. Um, and so he probably had a little bit of time to think about this and put this together and put his best foot forward. Uh, of course, he does go to Mulhausen, so the, the, uh, the folks there must have been, been pleased with, with what Bach did. Um, this piece is structured in seven movements, and we, can, we call this a chorale cantata because it's, it's grafted around... Um, a chorale written by Martin Luther. So Bach takes the text, he also takes the melody, which uh, appears in every one of the movements, including the first movement, which is uh, no voices. It's just, uh, it's called symphonia. It's an introduction for instruments. And what's a little different about this writing that Bach does is it's for five parts uh, in, the, in the orchestra. Um, 
he has two viola parts where normally we'd have one. We're not sure why he did this. It may have been requested. It may have been expected. We really can't say. Um, I don't think anybody has attributed the the number of string voices to any particular thing connected with a text. But in any case, um, some view this as kind of an uh, kind of old-fashioned way of, of organizing your thing. But you got to uh, think. The guy's 22 years old. He probably doesn't have a lot of experience writing his own music in this style. And he's putting his best ideas forward in, in something that he thinks um, perhaps that, you know, somebody else would really like. I kept remembering, I, I probably have the notes from the Bach class somewhere. Um, obviously, I couldn't find them on short notice here, but the thing that sticks in my head with Professor Mantech talking about this work uh, was the structure. And he was fascinated by what Bach did to the structure. We won't go too deeply into that, and I don't mean for these these podcasts to be exhaustive examinations of, of Bach's art in the sense that I'm going to dissect every piece. Um, I'm a little more interested in the podcast and exploring the performances I really think highlight the best. And for the opening symphonia, one of my favorite uh, recordings of it is actually from a CD featuring the uh, singer Ian Bostridge. The the orchestra is Europa Galante, which is led by a violinist by the name of Fabio Biondi. And... While they do not perform the whole cantata, they do include the first movement of it, the symphonia, almost as filler in the CD. But the symphonia leads with the first violin part, and it just kind of makes sense that uh, Biondi is going to kind of lead lead in in his own special way. Uh, he's an expressive Baroque violinist. Uh, you're going to hear this performed with what I would call, in modern terms, a chamber orchestra, right? Uh, this is a historically informed, um, aligned uh, orchestra, but with some expressive violin playing by uh, the director. So let's give this a listen, give you a flavor of this uh, cantata by Bach. So you can hear they take this quite seriously, right? This is in kind of a uh, 
intense piece of music. Um, so let's look at the text a little bit because it's before we go any further, we should know what what's being uh, what's being sung. Sung. This is an Easter piece. We're going to be discussing uh, Jesus Christ dying, Jesus Christ being resurrected. Um, what ends up being the second track or the second movement is verse 1 of the chorale. And this is the text. Christ lay in death's bonds, given over for our sins. He has risen again and brought us life. Therefore we should be joyful, praise God, and be thankful to him. Sing Alleluia, Alleluia. So, the setting is we're kind of visiting Christ dying. And so, that opening symphonia, um, I think Biondi does the best job of it. I mean, he's, he, he brings some gravitas to the, the performance. And while the album that that appears on is really about solo uh, movements from different Bach cantatas, and it's a really good CD, by the way, um, again with, with Ian Bostridge as the singer, um, they only give us a little taste of their thinking with um, the opening symphonia. So if you look at the music, which I'm going to put the, the link for in the, in the show notes, um, it's basically this, this, this symphonia fits on one page. Um, it's written out pretty simply and hidden within there is, is the theme. And you hear it in different guises, you'll hear it in different voices, but, uh, if you listen to enough of these, you can start to, to pull it out and Bach will do, do what many composers before him did with a theme that was to be the basis for something written. They call this a cantus firmus. Um, this was the foundation on which a lot of church music was built because you would have a theme that typically did not come from Martin Luther but came from chant. And it typically, uh, when this was first used, would be on the tenor voice. And... You, you can imagine the tenor voice is probably one of the strongest voices in the choir, right? It's the higher version of the male uh, voice. Um, and they could, they could uh, probably belt it out so you could hear it. And when you're sitting in a church, those were the things you would recognize. And that was so much a part of the, uh, the culture and understanding in church that you would immediately kind of know or hopefully would know what season that was from or what the text was just by recognizing that tune uh, it would be no different than us today uh, writing a jazz piece and, and you know originally it had words to it but now it's it's the melody in a saxophone or it gets passed over to the bass line that's what Bach was doing in this cantata is is taking that theme and what you'll hear later on with lots of notes going on, you'll hear this slow part. And that's where he's, he's exposing uh, the theme so it's, it's recognizable. And so he's taking some very old techniques to put this together. Um, again, one of his first attempts at writing church music like this. So let's get into 
the first movement where I just read the text. And the performance you're going to hear here uh, next is one of my favorites. It's, it's the group's name is the Reacher Car Consort. And this, I'm going to check a little bit of detail about the uh, recording here. Uh, the conductor is Philippe Pirlot. Um, it comes on an album which has the title Aus der Triefen, which is actually the uh, text from another Bach cantata. And I'll tell you a little bit more about why I like this performance later, but we're going to listen to the first verse from BWV4. So Bach puts that slower line in the soprano voice. Easiest for us to hear. It's, it's the highest part. Slow, that's that's the theme. He didn't want us to miss it. Um, there's some really cool things going on in each one of these that we could get. And I, I don't want, again, don't want to get into the, into the weeds on it. But there's these, these little rhythmic motifs that are, again, easy for us to hear. Um, the violins, which don't start, it's, it all starts in the soprano and with the bass line. Again, we're calling that the basso continuo. Um, da, 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 da. There's this entrance with all the voices. Um, it doesn't start on the beat, it starts on the, the eighth note of the beat. Da, 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 da. Um, the violins do the same thing when they come in. So he's got counterpoint going on. Um, we call that syncopation in music. That term may not mean a lot to you, but um, you're coming on right before the beat of something. And so uh, it's got this little rhythmic thing going on, and then he he switches the violin lines, goes da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And it keeps going back and forth with these da 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 um, In this performance, that's not as easy to hear, and it's, it's not that important, I think, in terms of you want to hear the text. But it's this, it's this driving thing that's going on in the background that, that keeps the movement going. And so the other thing to notice here is if, um, considering the earlier podcast we did on the motet, where a lot of the singing was together, like in a chorale. Here, they're not all singing the same text. They're singing the same text, but it doesn't all line up, uh, which makes which makes the singing a little uh, a little more complicated, I think. Um, and I should point out, this is the first Bach cantata that we're listening to, and one of the controversies about performing Bach's vocal works. Not specifically about this one, but as the whole lot, 
is what is the correct performance practice? One of the things you'll notice about these singers, which I really appreciate, is they're not using uh, what I would consider a more modern, almost operatic use of a shaky voice that we call vibrato. It's the same technique that a violinist today would use when playing the violin, where you're rotating your finger a little bit, or shaking it, it appears to be shaking, you're moving it back and forth. They call it vibrating it back and forth. And it gives the, the violin a certain tone. Um, through the Romantic era, this became more popular in practice, and it's generally frowned upon as a technique to use in Baroque music. Treatises would tell you that this vibration effect was used, but it was used for a special effect. It was a type of ornament. Um, and so in a string part, if you had a long note, you might introduce a vibrato to give some expression to that note. Um, this also probably started with long notes held out by singers. But in general, um, Baroque or historically informed uh, singers don't use a lot of vibrato with a voice. And that is to emphasize diction and to make the texts as easy to hear as possible because treatises generally um, cautioned against having a shaking voice. Um, but that's not the real controversy. The real controversy is how many singers go to part. So as I mentioned earlier, Bach wrote out five string parts and four uh, vocal parts. And typically it's, you know, this is very standard, soprano, alto, tenor, bass. In Bach's time, these likely were all males with, with younger uh, boys whose voices hadn't broken for the soprano part. Um, in some cases, we know Bach did write music for females. Uh, it was the context of the church that preferred not to have um, female singing in church. Um, and in this ensemble, we do have women singing the, the, the top two parts, I believe. I'll check on that. Uh, sometimes the alto is performed uh, by a male part. But that aside, how many people do you have per line? When we think of a choir or a chorus, we, we picture a group of people. And so there have been uh, different personalities a number of years ago that started arguing about this um, somewhat publicly in, uh, in academic circles. And it's kind of funny how they um, decided to, to point fingers and how they justified their opinions. Um, they actually went so far as to counting up how many co performing copies they could conjure up for a particular piece and say, look, there's only one soprano part, so it must have been one, one singer per part. And others would say, well, no, there were multiple parts, and then others would go back and try to explain why multiple parts existed. And, um, so there is some historical evidence Probably with that evidence, with different pieces, you could point at different things. It seems to me that 
that Bach was going to be a, a practical person. Um, we we can't say because he never told us whether he preferred, <laughs> you know, one soprano singer or he wanted fifteen if he could have fifteen. Um, we also don't know what the level of the singers was in comparison to what we have today. But I'm I'm often um, believing myself that the quality of performers that we have today who are professional musicians who study this, who try to, you know, are going to college for, for, for music careers, my guess is these performers we have in recordings like this one are probably the top notch. My guess is that this music sounds better today on a recording than it did live in Bach's time. And that's not to say that Bach himself or his the, the musicians that performed with him were not good musicians. We also have to imagine that musicians during the day uh, in his time were not uh, having their time divided by the internet and television and all the distractions we have in modern life. Uh, they probably had a little more time to practice, but so much of Bach's writing, especially with the cantatas, seems to have been done up to the last minute. I'm in the middle of reading right now, for instance, um, John L.A. Gardner's book um, on Bach's music, and there's evidence to suggest that you know the parts, not only were the parts being written up to the performance time, but in some cases there's evidence that the music may have been composed up to the last minute. And so when you think about that, this this the ink was still wet in some cases. Um, how practiced could these folks have been? And if you're bringing your music to a, a new spot, some of this stuff may have been sight-read, which is not to say that they weren't really good musicians, because if they could sight-read music like this, they were good. But to what extent? We don't know. And certainly when you have multiple people singing, single errors probably stick out a little less because there's other singers to kind of cover for you. Of course, if you sing the wrong note out loudly and somebody else sings the right note, that would be sound awful. Um, so there's these folks going back and forth. And two of the proponents for um, single line reading are uh, Andrew Parrott, who, who's a, a British musician, and Joshua Rifkin, uh, who is best known for... Um, performing with uh, a Bach group here in the United States. And they're arguing for the one person per part. And that's the approach taken in this recording. One singer per part. And whether it's historically accurate or not, it does provide this wonderful clarity to the sound. Um, the ensemble's a little more intimate, but it lets things just kind of pop out because you've just got one person singing the line uh, in a way that when you add multiple voices can be difficult to do. And it's not necessary that when you add multiple people that the quality of the singing goes down. It's just a different type of sound. And typically, you're not going to be quite as dexterous um, with popping things out because there's multiple people behind it. Um, that's not to say that a choir with a lot of people doesn't sound good. It can sound wonderful. But I like the, what it does to the texture in this piece especially.
And for some reason, because it's an early work by Bach, and how many, you know, trained first-rate performers did he have in the first performance? Something in my in my head aligns this one person per part to Bach's early works. And having listened to so many of Bach's cantatas, it definitely works a little better, I think, even in his earlier works. Not sure exactly why, but it just resonates with me. And at some point when you're talking about performing historically informed or not, and when you're trying to make decisions about performance, um, sometimes you're going to go with your gut what just sounds better. Um, you know, box wishes or the historical record um, may not agree with that. So that's kind of the opening movement. A lot of energy, a lot of little rhythmic things going on back and forth that you hear. Um, and we have voices starting, instruments kind of following. So we have interplay going on. Quite complex. Um, but kind of cool sounding too, I think. It's, 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 it's good music writing. When we take a look at the next movement, it's a duet between the soprano and alto parts. And the text is, No one could defeat death among all humanity. This was all because of our sins. No innocence was to be found. Um, and each one of these verses ends with, Hallelujah. So this is the texture, the sound of the second verse, or the third movement of BWV4. So what's important here is that bass line. Boom, 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 boom. Because in the in these this duet, we're doing the same type of, of rhythm motive, but we slowed it down half time. Bach is very economical in his musical material. And he's again kind of keeping this little rhythmic motives going, which is which is really cool. And it reinforces those those first words. Incidentally, I mentioned before that the alto voice is sometimes a, a man. In this performance, the alto is is sung by a man. It's not that important, I don't think. Um, You'll see historical performers kind of mix, go back and forth, and sometimes if, when the larger choirs are used, which uh, our organist, uh, Tan Koopman, whose, whose excerpt I used at the very beginning of this podcast, um, he was one of the, the guys that really liked the, the choir approach with multiple uh, voices per part. And uh, in the argument, uh, would also look at some evidence uh, based on texts by Bach. So this one is a slower movement, but Bach is using some of the same techniques that he used in the first movement, which is to have some interplay um, between the instrumental part and the singing part, and uh, using these little rhythmic motifs uh, that make it very easy for the, the listener to hear. Jesus Christ. 
very kind of uh, catching third verse. Uh, Bach is talking about how Jesus has come here to uh, save us from our sins sent by God. And the obligato, what they would call violin part, um, that's how it's used here. Because not only is the ensemble playing one voice per part, they're playing one violin per part. And it kind of makes sense to me, uh, especially at that tempo, uh, you've got this violin part that has this, again, motivic, motivic when I say that word, if, if, it's, if it doesn't make sense to you or doesn't, doesn't relate to you in a non-musical way. It's taking little cells of ideas. And here we've got this rhythm with all the 16th notes. And that just kind of keeps repeating. Uh, Bach has that kind of busy stuff happening at the top of the texture. And this solo tenor voice, very, um, very bold singing, just kind of cuts through that at a slower tempo. And what's interesting, again, is I've been talking about the different types of performance. We're going to actually listen to the same movement performed by an ensemble, the English Baroque Soloists, is the orchestra in the Monteverdi Choir, uh, by John Elliott Gardner. They've recorded this as part of their Bach pilgrimage recording. Now, this is in, uh, in 2000, basically. The ensemble went to various churches. They did a world tour, so to speak. Tried to record as many of Bach's uh, sacred cantatas, the one those intended for church, as they could in public concerts and made recordings of them. And they have since released that whole thing on a multiple CD set. Um, so if you're, if you're looking for purchasing all of Bach's recordings, it's not a bad one. Um, some, of the, some of the cantatas by Bach, uh, when I have multiple copies of them, that, that, that sometimes is my favorite. Although in this case, I've chosen the, the Reacher Car Consort. But I want you to hear the difference. Not only are you going to hear the different sound world that uh, that recording provides us, you also hear a little more intensity. And uh, Gardner's not shy about pushing the tempo either. Uh, and so while I felt that the tempo just chosen was kind of nice for, nice and fast for highlighting a solo violin, uh, Gardner even pushes it harder and uses a, um, a small orchestra of violins. It definitely just gives you a, kind of a different flavor. And you may like the Gardner approach better. Let's see. Definitely different sound here, right? I want, I'm going to let this play out because I want you to hear what happens in the violin part here. So I know before I've talked about 
um, double stopping, triple stopping on a violin. And Bach, at that moment, calls for triple stopping on the violins. And it just kind of builds, and it sounds kind of cool. Um, it, it sounds especially cool <laughs> performed by uh, the English Baroque soloists. Multiple violins, fast tempo, it's very intense. And when you see things like that, you have to look at the text. When we looked at Brandenburg and Sherdo, uh number four, and we had this very interesting solo violin part that just kind of went wild, we didn't have a text to look at. But we know Bach can respond as, as many, let's say all Baroque composers would, um, to the gestures meant things to people. And we've lost a lot of the interpretation of what those mean. We have some guides, but that particular gesture is just, it, it arrests your attention. Why? At that time in the text, um, the words talk about um, God's power over us. God's power over us. So something powerful, something just kind of speaking out over the text kind of makes sense. Um, Bach is is painting a little bit, if you will, and he does that throughout his cantatas. Not religiously, he's not always, I wouldn't say he's always um, putting these musical effects over good mus musicianship or good composing. Uh, he's still composing nice melodies and things like that, but uh, he occasionally really wants us to, to be listening, and these things kind of pop out at us. Uh, the more you examine this music, you'll see these types of things, and uh, they're very interesting. Uh, for the layperson who's kind of interested in learning more about box music, uh, you can typically f find mention of these types of things in liner notes or, or doing research online. Um, one of the greatest resources that I think we have online for box music is the Bach Cantata website. Uh, it's the most comprehensive library, if you will, of information about Bach's vocal music. Um, they're really focusing on information, which is just handy to find, on every one of the Bach cantatas. I'm going to link it in the show notes for the, the pages they have on this particular um, cantata BWV4. But what you get is you, you find out everybody who's recorded it. They put the pictures of what the albums look like. They have links where you can buy them. They have, in some cases, the liner notes are reproduced. It's just a treasure trove of information about the recordings. But in addition, they host an email list that's been going on for a long time. And they reproduced the email lists on the website as well. Now, all the discussions are probably not relevant to you. I know they're not all relevant to me. Uh, sometimes the members of the group are arguing about this and that, uh, which you may not care about. But it's worth kind of a, a browse through if you've if you've chosen to study or to look at a cantata for a period of time, and um, it's just this nice some nice discussions to kind of follow and in background information to inform you what Bach may be doing in that score. I know I know I keep. I like to follow the music along when I study a piece. Of course, I read music. Uh, you may not. Uh, if you don't, even just following along, you kind of would pick up the pace of things, especially when a piece is not that long or if it fits on a page. Um, hopefully you can follow along. Uh, it's not critical, 
but it can help you kind of understand what's going on. It matches what your ear is hearing to what your eye sees in, in some cases and, and gives more context, um, especially if you have a translation of the text or understand German and, and can kind of appreciate what Bach is doing with the text. So I just want to give you a different flavor of what's out there in terms of um, the performance practice. And of course the tenor here has the melody this time. Um, and then we go into the next verse. So that was verse 4 with a four-part vocal um, complement. This is verse 5 with solo bass. Bach is using um, some similar elements. He's got um, those mo motives we've talked about, both in a rhythmic sense and a melodic sense, being traded uh, among the movements, being reused, slowing them down, add, adding um, speed to them. And in this next, um, next verse, I really think it shows off for me, probably more than any of the other um, movements, why this recording really shines. It's just very clear, some great contributions from both the instrumentalists and the singers. This is uh, verse 6. jig or something, right? What is Bach doing? Well, the text there kind of tells it all. So we celebrate the high festival with joy of heart and delight, which the Lord radiates upon us. But it doesn't sound happy, does it? It sounds, it sounds jaunty, but we're still stuck in this minor key, minor mode. And that's because the chorale melody is in a minor mode. So, so Bach kind of combines that tonality or, or mode as we would call it and gives us that jaunty feeling and certainly I'm, I'm guessing that when folks heard this it was a little bit jarring that typically a dance would be something you wouldn't necessarily hear that often in um, in a church you'd think it was a little jazzy maybe right but there's a there's a context for it and that's the text the last um, the last verse Bach sets as a chorale. So we've had this chorale melody. He adds his harmony around it. Um, and the text in the last one is, We eat and live well on the true Easter bread. The old leaven shall not exist next to the word of grace. Uh, and of course it ends in again, Hallelujah. So this is Bach's chorale cantata, Christ lagen todes banden. 
Hope you've enjoyed learning a little bit more about it, about the performance and hearing some different takes on this chorale melody, this chorale by Martin Luther from about 1524. Thanks for listening. My name is John Hendren, and this has been BachCast, episode number eight. Yes, sir.